The dynamic of marital unity dissolves when a culture throws off all morals, all commitments in the institution of marriage, which, by the way, was created by God when he brought Eve to Adam on. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for wisdom, understanding. I ask, Lord, that you would take me away so that people would see Jesus Christ. Lord, may magnify your word. Let us see the truth and make the lies become clear. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, sermon, message, teaching, is episode 45 in the Cultural Christianity series. The name of this one is Cultural Hardening, and it's based in Judges chapter 2, which I will begin to read. But before I do, let me underscore the idea, state the idea that not all cultures are the same. Among people who are familiar with Christianity, we understand that, you know, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We understand that man is part of a race of people who are descended from the same single man, Adam. And because of that, all have fallen as he fell in the garden. And becoming a sinful man, he passed it on. And it gets passed on from generation to generations. So we're all sinners. And from that, we can kind of take out of it that being all sinners, we're all the same. But it doesn't quite work out that way, as we're going to see in this message. Now, when you look back over life, if you're able to do that, if you've uh, obtained a certain amount of age, as I have, you know, once you start to get to be about 40, you can look back at a generation of people and you can see differences. You see change. You see things start to alter from the way they were. And then you get the idea that maybe it's not the way we imagine in our head that all people are the same, even though we know we're all different. All kinds of personalities and attitudes and variations in, in all of that. And so we know there's differences. But in, again, in the, in the Christian mindset, sometimes we don't see things as clearly as we should. My, in my, uh, for an example, you know, in 1964, I think it was, or one, 1961, maybe, West Side Story came out. And I just saw it again recently, and it, it brought back a lot of memories. And I was like nine years old when I saw it the first time, uh, eight years old. And, uh, you know, just bald at the end of this Romeo and Juliet tale. And then uh, it came out in the movies, as it would back then. Um, movies would come out again. You, you know, we didn't have VCRs, and you had to wait a long time for it to come on TV. Anyway, ten years later, it comes back out. And uh, the first time when we left the theater, everybody was crying. And the second time 
10, just 10 years later, everybody was laughing. And they were joking and making fun of the dancing that was in it. It was almost like no one died in the story. And it, it hit me. I mean, it hit me pretty hard that in that amount of time, I went from 9 to 18, you know, now I'm, I'm looking at, at the people around me and what changed? Something changed. You know, I mean, you could have sold Kleenexes the first time around. You would have made a killing. Uh, but, you know, things weren't that way. Cultures change. I mean, clearly, sometimes you can observe it. I heard it from my father and my, my older relatives. And, you know, I experienced the 60s. I can look back and that's ancient now. I, I saw the bathrooms in high school uh, in the 60s, go from smoking cigarettes to smoking pot. I mean, I just saw it happening before my eyes. You know, so there is this cultural sense in which people who are individuals are also sheep, like Jesus said, and we, we follow along. Well, in, uh, in, in Judges chapter 2, it makes this really clear. And as we go through it, I hope you'll see this. Judges, let's start from chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. What I want us to see in this portion is that one generation's blessings and victories led to another generation's failures. Judges 2, 6 to 10. Quote, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went, each one to his inheritance, to take possession of the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Tinath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And here's a key verse right at the end. And another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord, nor even the work which he had done for Israel. Now there's a few things that we can see in there pretty clearly right on the surface. And that is uh, number one, maybe, well, that would be by implication, but immediately we know that they didn't know the Lord. They hadn't come to a saving knowledge of God. We know that the generation that came out in Egypt died in the wilderness, and we'll look at that later. Um, and they, they, they failed to enter into the promised land, and a picture of heaven. And uh, also, um, they, this next generation did not know the work which Israel had, which God had done for Israel. From that we can glean that the um, another generation, you know, it doesn't necessarily say the immediately next generation. It says another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord. This, by this generation, if it was the next one or two or three ahead, they had not been adequately shown by their parents carrying on exactly what had happened. Or, I'm not saying that's definitely true. I wasn't there. But, or what this could be saying is, as hard as it is for one generation to explain and tell what happened before, the next generation just doesn't get it. I mean, they weren't there. 
We can talk about World War II and what it was like when Hitler was trying to conquer the world and the death of the Jews and all of those things. And people now, they look back, yeah, that didn't happen, it did. You know, all of this. You go into the museum, the Holocaust Museum, and you see this giant picture taken with Eisenhower there, and Eisenhower saying, look, I want this for our prosperity. I want us to know that this happened. But even though the pictures are there and the skeletons and the bodies, you know, a lot of people just don't want to believe. So this generation, there was a generation that followed just totally oblivious to what took place. So another generation arose, and they didn't know God. Now, as it goes on, and we'll go to this next part, from there what we learn is a generation's provocations led them to be given over to plunderers. So Israel enters into the promised land. They start conquering through Joshua and through Caleb. And, you know, what happens is these men uh, conquer. There's victories through Christ, through God. And he's working blessings in the lives of this generation. But then another generation grows up. doesn't work out that way. Joshua chapter 2 and verses 11 through 15. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, these false gods. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Now this is not Israel as if it's not generational. It's not Israel. You see Israel and you go through history. I mean, you have to understand, stop. You know, this eight, time is going by. The One generation is dying off, as we all understand that happens, and a new generation comes. This is a whole different people, a whole different group of people, a different culture sometimes. It's culturally Jewish, uh, but then there's all these variables that come in. And right here, they're going from the law of Moses and serving that God to false gods. Verse 13 they bowed themselves, prior 12, down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, and served Baal and the Asherah. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Which Israel? This other generation, other than Joshua's generation. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. A generation's provocations provoking God led them to be given over to those men and women, men who plundered them. They took what they had. Verse 15, whatever they, wherever they went, the, land, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. And Jehovah had spoken had as he had spoken, and as Jehovah had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. So this generation of Israel rebelled against the Mosaic law. And I want to say that this happens generationally in, in all nations. Now, not all nations have the law of Moses, just as all nations in history have had Christianity spoken to them. Now, uh, in America, we had the Great Awakening. I'm not to take the time to go into that. But we had uh, Puritans come over from England, England uh, running away from persecution. And they sought out a new land, and they came to America. And these were serious Christian people, some of them. And then, you know, there 
was the great awakening that took place, which mighty preaching, multitudes of people giving their life to Christ. It just changed the nation, the configuration of the way it was in 1740 to 1780, and, or 1740 to 1770. It took place for 30 years here. It started 10 years earlier in England. Uh, but America has rejected not the law of Moses, but has rejected and rebelled, the world has really, against the teachings of Christ's sufferings and sacrifice. As far as the world has been made known, the gospel, many people in the world even today, a large number, don't never even heard the gospel once. But I want to look for a minute at America, as, and we'll come back to Israel and this generational thing that takes place. Uh, God gave America over to atheism, before the 60s, but in the 60s, it went up to a whole new level. I mean, it lost in the courts when they debated in that famous court case, the monkey trials there, Scopes trials, and, and, and they lost. But people w really didn't, some people in the beginning, you know, just gravitated still towards that idea of evolution. Um, and so God... It was giving America over to this atheism through evolutionary teaching. Now Romans 1, 18-23 says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is his divine power, divine nature, that he's eternal. He's eternal. I mean, he's, he doesn't have beginning of days or end of life. Something has to be in the beginning. You can't go from nothing to something. It's unreasonable. Aristotle understood that. You can't be and not be at the same time and in the same relationship. And what he means is nothing, as Einstein put it, creates nothing. You can't go from nothing to something. But today, in our great scholarly wisdom, say that that's what happened. But God says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, can't see God, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, his attributes in nature have been seen, being understood through what has been made. It had to come from somewhere. The smallest child said, where did everything come from, Daddy? So that they are without excuse. Where does that, who built this house? I mean, the house has a configuration, it's there for a reason. The clock, you know, it's got a reason, it tells us time. It's being understood, so we're without excuse because there's, there's complexity and there's design. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Here sin is playing the part that it does on man's mind out of pride and it just blinds him. Professing to be wise, they became fools. When did this happen? Well, it's happened every generation. I mean, you just get born and you just, you're a part of Adam's race. And when you get to a certain age, you fully yourself. And we know those mid, you know, those age, a teen years and middle school age and what goes on. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What's going on here? I mean, God is, is saying, look, you'd rather 
take a piece of wood, carve it into something that looks like a dog with a man's head, and you're going to follow this thing, and you can say, this is my God. Because why? We elevate the creation. There's a lot of ways of doing it. You don't have to do it physically with idols anymore. We can just do it with philosophy. And the philosophies are all over the place. There's thousands of them. And all the philosophies just come to this one conclusion. There is no God. God and prayer have been thrown in America out of government institutions, our courtrooms, our classrooms, and our cultural awareness. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't any people who doesn't say they're God, but there are multitudes of people in our culture today, in American society, even though there's a great divide, and they just claim, and even people claiming to be Christian, you know, it's, it's just evolved, you know, and, there's, and the reason for that is to, to say there is no God. I'm not going to go into that, but that's a whole study in itself. Tell me again why we should believe anything our government, our universities, or our controlled media have to say when all they say is there is no God. There's no truth. There's no Bible. There's no absolutes. All the no's, you know, just tear it all apart. We know about that. Uh, so I'm, all I'm saying is where America's at. Now, in Romans 1, 24 to 25, God gave men over to immorality. He's not saying God gave America over. I'm putting that in. But he give, he's given men over to atheism, even though they have false religions. And he's given men over to immorality. In, in Romans 1, 24 and 25, it says, Therefore God gave them up to a vile impurity to, in the lusts of their hearts, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The truth. What's the truth? Well, in the 60s, again, all the morals went out. You know, we're gonna, I remember shacking up, you know, that term came in and marriage went out and all of that just dissipated because people just wanted their freedom morally. One time we had people over and they were a young couple like 20 and 21 and uh, I, I started to, we started talking and we talked about generational differences a long time ago and she was unbelievably aware of generational differences and like 20 years old. It's like, like where did you come from? How did you get this? Well, I took a course in college, and in the course, we were supposed to look at character development in the uh, 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. And said, by the time I got to the 70s, I had to stop because I saw before my eyes the decline of America. Very wise person. And you can do that. You can look at movies, look at them during the 40s, and see what was portrayed. And people say, well, it wasn't really like that. And all the people who say that didn't live then. But you talk to people, and people are sinners, and I understand that. I'm not talking that people are like perfect and better. Or what I'm talking about is there is such a thing as Joshua chapter, Judges chapter 2 is teaching us here that there's declines that take place. And in that declension that takes place, there's a hardening of the heart, a hardening of the soul towards the conscience towards just what, basic, what people are basically are, even who do not know Christ. In this, he's talking in 24 and 25 about basic morality being given over to immorality. The dynamic of marital unity dissolves 
when a culture throws off all morals, all commitments in the institution of marriage, which, by the way, was created by God when he brought Eve to Adam. And he, he created marriage. So in Ephesians chapter 5, 28 to 33, we read this. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, as for you individually, each husband is to love his own wife as wife the same as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, I'm not going to primarily look at Ephesians 5, 28 to 33 with the idea of marriage, which, of course, that's what it's talking about. But uh, I want us to understand just quickly that this marriage institution, while it's, it's an institution for man while he lives in this first heavens and this first earth, it is, it's, it's a picture of something so much deeper and so much more. How do I know that? Because it says in the text right here, he says, this is, mystery is great. A mystery is something which was told in the Old Testament. And in this case, it's the institution of marriage, which is before us through all generations. And there's always families and marriage and bringing forth children. And all of that exists right before our eyes. And he's saying this mystery, which is revealed in history, you know, it, it, it's great. What, what's great about it? But, he says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he takes this institution of marriage and he turns it into what God is doing with his people. He redeems. He makes them wake up. He allows them to see the wickedness of pride and arrogance, and immorality, and the disobedience, which really leads to just hurting one another, and pain, and war, and suffering, and selfishness. Let's narrow it down to a self-centered, selfish form of life that we hurt one another. And he takes people from that fallen world, and he turns them into a bride for his son, so that there's the son of God, and a people made in his own image through his own sufferings and death for them in that he took the burden and the penalty of their sins upon himself in order to redeem them and in order to turn them into his bride. And so that's this mystery hidden, which is lost when men, I mean, not only did they not see it, which it, it's not really seen in the church. You go back to the 40s and you see the romance and you see the husband and the wife and they leave God out of everything and it's lost anyway. But then the generations come where they just throw it out completely and they lose it all together. You might look at it and say, well, it's really not that big a difference. In, in a big, big sense, it isn't. But in a small sense, it is because God makes a point of it here in Judges. So then we go on from Ephesians, you know, back to the, the course of America that's declining 
you know, at first declines through atheism, then immorality, and then he goes to 26 and 27, says, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, the men, too, abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their, their error. Now, when I say these things, we begin with immorality, which is sin, and it's an offense to God, and it's the breaking of his law, and then it goes on to homosexuality. And, and here, sin is, an, is a, it's something that God hates either way. So whether it's a man cheating on his wife, if it's people never getting married, if it's people going into homosexuality, you know, there's a giving over and there's a giving over and there's a giving over, but it's all sin. And the one who commits one sin is guilty before God, and the other person who commits another sin is guilty before God. Right now we're looking at cultural declines. We're looking at uh, the extent to which people view the law of God or their conscience and beginning with their understanding of God. So then in 28 through 32, we conclude uh, these four declines as, as they're uh, written in Romans with these words, and I quote, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a deprived, depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, unmerciful. You know, all those good qualities turned inside out. And although they know the ordinance of God, if not by the law of Moses, or the law of God in the, in the conscience, and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. They just push it on, yeah, let's do it, this is right, it's freedom, you know, blah, 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 blah. He gives people over, he gives people over, in this last one, he gives people over to a depraved mind. Depraved in Greek, adakamos, which not, is basically not, standing the test. What test? They're rejected. What rejected about what? Worthless. What's worthless? It's a depraved mind. In Greek, nous, or nous, or mind, understanding, reason. And this is something that's given of God, reason. God-given ability to reason. As I just went back before, saying that in the beginning, with atheism, Men reject God as if there's not, has no eternal being that had to begin everything. We know, you know, the law of entropy and second, first, second law of thermodynamics, things are breaking down. Energy always exists, so we're told, but it, it's breaking down. You know, it's, it had to start somewhere, unlike God, who is eternal. And so the, the reason goes. It went from the beginning with idolatries and religions because man is meant to worship something. Uh, but in, in this case, now it's gotten all the way to 6,000 years after the creation and by the genealogies of the Bible. And after that amount of time, what we have is um, people who just, it's like a cycle. It started with 
false religion and atheism or some form of atheism, and then comes right back around to evolution, and which is, you know, pantheism, something that's, you know, 3,500 years old. It's just in a different form. But basically, you know, tree hugging and nature comes first and everything came from nature. Like, what's nature? You know. <clears throat> anyway, the irony is in the idea that in the age of reason, we are without reason. In the age of education and undeniable scientific achievement, men have been given a mind of a moron. And this is something that God did. I'm not saying it. I'm not making it happen. It's what God says. Which brings us back to the third part in Second Judges, in Judges chapter 2, where we have uh, uh, this final decline in this chapter. Of course, Israel continued to, to decline for 1,200 years. But generations in Israel declined under God, actually to the place where it says God would not forgive. Now, that's a line that I only know of one place in the Bible. But in Judges, before we get to that line, uh, we're going to read to finish John, Judges 2, 16 to 23, which says this, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet, big word, they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods, bowed down themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandment of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. Now, there it is. That's a generational decline. And they're not doing what their fathers did. The first generation under Joshua, good generation. A lot of sinners uh, still went to, I'm sure, went to that place of hell. But also the redeemed. There's always a remnant. But as generation goes, they were better. It says it. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of the enemies. And this is because they're crying out all the days of the judge. And they're in distress. For the Lord was moved to pity, it says, by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly. I don't know how any other way to interpret this. They turned back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following their gods to serve them. And there's many judges throughout this period of time, about 400 years. And every time a judge comes, he delivers them. You know, they're thankful uh, for their freedoms, but they're not. And then they turn back and they do more corruptly than the one before. They did not, it says, abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. And verse 23 so the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So there's a reason for all of that. And every generation declining, and he's leaving the land where there's all these satanic practices, 
and they just decline and decline and decline. So we're going to look at two passages, one from 2 Kings and the other from 2 Chronicles. And it says this in 2 Kings 24, verses 3 and 4. 2 Kings 24, verses 3 and 4 says this, quote, It indeed came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them from his sight due to the sins of Manasseh in accordance with everything that he had done and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was unwilling to forgive. Those are ominous words. The Lord was not willing to forgive. You know, there are generations that took place there, or at least different men rose up. Someone would take his place, as in, uh, uh, as in Manasseh, Josiah, and there's a, a, like four or five generations. But when it came to Manasseh, and it's that, we'll read that in 2 Chronicles 33.1 and 3-6, through 6, and it talks about Manasseh that he would not forgive what was done. Even though Josiah, who was a, as righteous a king as the record goes in the line of David, you know, yet he did not do uh, as... David, his father, is said of all the kings except Josiah. Josiah doesn't say he didn't because he tore down the altars. He tore down everything. He destroyed everything. He was like, he was like the king after David. He may not have rose exactly to the level of David, but he was like a David. And, and he was one, and, but God held what Manasseh did. And when they were pulled out of the land, when, they were, when the kings were just had their thumbs cut off and, you know, put their eyes out, whatever was done to these kings. When they, when they defiled Jerusalem and they're taken out into Babylon and, and into captivity, you know, because, it, and this is what it says about Manasseh in Second Chronicles 33, 1, 3 through 6. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. That's in verse 1. And then going on, it, it says, he also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim, these are all different types of gods, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven. Now, make no mistake, the hosts of heavens are demonic beings. Some people want to tra- translate or <clears throat> this word from the Hebrew. Don't ask me why. I'm not even a Hebrew scholar. I don't care. You know, they, they put it in a context and they say it means this in the context, but the definition of the word is hosts which is warriors. Uh, you know, you got angels that are good and they defend God and his honor and his law and they're warriors and they're hosts. That's what the word means. It's an army. It's, a, it's an army that's it's divisioned up. It's got categories and levels and just like, a, just like we do today. And that's how it's used in Genesis too. And that's how it's used throughout the Bible because that's what the word means. It doesn't mean stars. It means hosts. It means battle-ready warriors. And so this is what it says. He elected, he erected these false gods to what? Demonic warriors of heaven and serve them. This is spiritual warfare. This is cultic. And it goes on. And it says, I mean, we want context. Here's context. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, my name shall be in Jerusalem forever. I mean, Okay, so now he's taking the Lord's name out and he's putting these evil things right in the house of the Lord. 
For he built altars, even, even Solomon didn't do that. I mean, he took them out in the fields, in the, in the different parts of Israel. Uh, not this guy, right into the temple. For he, verse 5, for he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons, here's key, pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hanan, and that's, by the way, Hades, and the fire never goes out, it's always burning. That was the place where they made that when Jesus comes along, and he used it as a symbol of what hell is, where the, the, the fires are never quenched in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. I mean, they're all there. There's other terms that could be, it's all, the whole gambit He's going in there. Of those who passed through the fire, he practiced witchcraft, divination. This is demonic. Practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, what did he do? He passed people through the fire. What, what people are those? Well, those are the babies that were thrown to the altars of Baal, in order to bring supposed blessing to these false gods on the land so people could be prosperous. Does that ring a bell? Is it anything close to what we see in America and around the world today? Do I need to go in the, the clock that's ticking? And I could look it up and show how many babies, while I'm giving this lesson, have been destroyed in the wombs of their mothers. He built altars for all the host of heaven. He made his sons pass through the fire of the valley of Ben-Hinnon. I mean, he threw them into the flames. They're, they're children. How far down did they go? By the, end, by the end of the judges, I mean, there's a priest, and he cuts a woman up into pieces and sends it out to all 12 tribes, and they're going like, this is horrible. You know, <clears throat> 1,200 years, well, 800 years later, they're about to, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing their babies into the fire. And this is like the, the practice. Now, this was the practice of the lands around them, which God destroyed. For what? For, for this, this innocent blood that's being shed. Innocent blood, in Second Kings it calls it. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. What blood is innocent? The, the blood of infants. The blood of children, before they get to the age where they understand right from wrong, they're, they're innocent. They haven't committed evil willfully. They're innocent. In uh, 1955, they made a movie in Hollywood, and, and they called it Ransom. It came out later. Mel Gibson made a movie. They made it, uh, you know, action-packed in the, the new movie. I think it was like 95, something like that. When 55, it was just a drama. And it's a drama where the man is, uh, you know, at one point he's, he's, he's trying to do what's right when people had kidnapped his son. And rather than give in, which people do because they want their, they think they're going to get their child back, and he asked the, the, the police chief, you know, what are the odds? What am I working with here? And then he realized the odds were like 50-50. So for 50-50, I'm going to pass on this ransom for money and people have their children kidnapped to some other poor dope because I'm willing to pay and they're, willing, and they're going to get the money. But if nobody gets the money, 
If nobody pays, there's no kidnapping rap, racket. So he puts the money on their heads and whatever it was, $2 million or something. And, you know, instead of, instead of you getting the money, I'm putting it on your heads. Anybody who catches you, they're going to get the money. Now, people disagree with this. They don't get the point. <clears throat> He's trying to do what's right for other generations, for other people. And at one point in the movie, having laid that out, he, uh, he goes on the television, because he owns this program, and instead of the program, he sits there at this desk, and he's got all the money laid out. And then he says this, with my hands on this New Testament, and he's got the New Testament in his hand, and he puts both hands, and he's got it wrapped around, and he's just a quote. He says, I swear to carry out everything I just said. Now, there was a day in America when they knew right from wrong, and they knew that passing something on to another person would not be the best way to go, just in order, in the hope that maybe you might get your child back. Uh, but in that, in that day, you know, when people got sworn in to witness, give testimony in the court of law, they used to put their hands on the Bible. And I remember this. And they used to say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God with their hands on the Bible. Now that's thrown out. You know, we don't do that anymore. No more Bibles. No more swearing on God. You know, no more swear. You know, we swear to tell the truth, but on ourselves, you know, not on God. You know, so help me, God. Not on God, but so help me, God. The plea is for God. There is no God. You know, there's only monkeys that turn into men. That's what we have today. I want to tell you something. In America, we have a lot to be responsible for because we've been given the gospel clearly in past generations. This is what Jesus said during his generation. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 23, he said this, quote, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Big word, repent. I spoke about it on the last episode. Repentance, a key part. What do we men repent of? Wickedness, the evil that lies in our heart. He says he denounced these cities. Why? In which most of his miracles were done. He goes on in verse 21 and says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I can't explain totally what Jesus means by that. I, I'm going to take it for what it says. And what it says is they would have repented long ago. So something in this these people were not at the hardness of heart that these cities that Jesus is talking about were, that they could see Jesus healing, performing miracles as only Almighty God could, and they rejected it. They had no faith in it. They didn't believe in it. Verse 22, he says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more toler tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Those words we need to take to heart because, you see, we're like that generation. The world is like that generation in a lot of ways. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. You will descend to hell. Capernaum, this place in Israel at Jesus' time. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. This is where that place 
where it's, it's re rehearsed more times in Scripture than any other story, that of Sodom and Gomorrah, where it's really clear the evil and the wickedness that took place, that God came down and destroyed that city in a miracle. Israel excelled when under good kings they lived by the law, but their hearts were always idolatrous. For this reason, they quickly returned again and again to their idolatries. Whether it was kings or as judges, you know, the king would rise up, he would bring freedom, he would bring victory. A good king like Josiah, he would tear down the altars, and the people would return right back to where the way they were. There has always been two Israels. The Israel of these people of which I'm speaking that return and return hard-hearted and the remnant. Little piece, you know, like you, you got a piece of rug left over. It's a little piece of Israel who were converted. They repented of their sin like on the day of Pentecost. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. There has always been two Americas, just as there has been two Israels. 1630, Massachusetts, Massachusetts Bay Colony founded 700 by 700 Puritans. 1649, English Puritans under Cromwell ousted the king and rule in England until 1660 Commonwealth. You know, they're just trying to cut out a piece of land for themselves where righteousness could rule instead of the wickedness of this present world. It is good in this corrupt world for godly men to cut out a piece of land for themselves. I mean, that's what the early church did. Persecution comes, and it's going to come, but what we're meant to do, you know, is rather than this church thing that takes place, which is more a schoolhouse than a community. It's, you know, we... There's good things that people do, and they, they stand for what's right in, in pieces and bits and pieces, but it's not a whole community to themselves. That's what we, I mean, there's enough quote-unquote Christians throughout America that we could have large communities of people that work together, that work for one another, that lived in a righteous and holy way. You know, stealing and gossiping, coveting, and all these things. But that doesn't happen. We just go into the world, we work with the world, we associate with the world when we're called out. And, you know, because, well, you know, we're, we're not a nation of people. But we could be still in the world, but not of the world. But we're of the world. Oftentimes we're of the world. Governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, founded by about 700 English Puritan immigrants, gave this sermon to his community shortly after arrival in New England. This is a governor, uh, a pastor. And he lays out the values the new community should observe as logically derived from and based upon biblical scripture. I mean, our country, because of the Great Awakening, has more scripture involved in the, in, in the way it's all organized and everything than most people have any knowledge of at all. And this is where our freedom, our Social freedom, not spiritual freedom, but social freedom. Spiritual freedom is the gospel. Social freedom can come from the gospel by people who live it out. And as men who didn't even know Christ for the most part, and but heard the preaching during those 30 years in America and the Great Awakening, and it affected them. The second America is about greed, idolatry, slavery. 
The first America is the Puritans. It's about holiness and godliness and goodness. Greed and idolatry always degenerates to gross immorality, violence, and cold-hearted hatred for God, which turns into atheism. The hardening of the human heart is found in Hebrews chapter 3, in conclusion. Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Then carrying on in verse 6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold firmly to our confidence and the boast of our hope. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, it's always today, it's never yesterday, it's never tomorrow, it's always today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as on the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my anger, they certainly shall not enter my rest. They never went into the promised land. They died in the wilderness. Forty years of it. Why? Because they hardened their heart. So then the admonition comes from the apostle who wrote Hebrews. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, the only people who fall away are not real. They hear the gospel. They associate with Christian believers. And, but they fall away because they're not real in their heart. But, verse 13, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's the deceitfulness of sin? Believing you're saved when you're not. Believing you're in because you made a statement, because you prayed a prayer, because you walked an aisle, because you were baptized, because you go to church. The list is very long. That doesn't get a person into heaven. What gets into person into heaven is eternal life. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's an intimate knowledge. That's a relationship between the living God and a sinner saved by grace. So we're told, take heed, brothers. Take care, brothers. Today, if you hear his voice, he repeats again. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. That was a whole generation of people. There's a small remnant of believers today. Don't believe it when they want to make you believe there's like 40% or 30% of the population that's Christian. That's, that's not, not, not probable. Verse 17, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose dead bodies fell, in the wilderness. Why do I say not probable? Because Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in that way. But narrow is the way. Narrow is the gate. Constricted is the gate that leads to eternal life. And few, few there be that find it. And with the preaching that there is today. Verse 18, And to whom did he swear? 
that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. And then verse 19, here's the conclusion. So And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And unbelief, belief is trust in God alone. Faith without works is dead, being by itself alone. So faith produces works, and without the works, which begin in the heart, not some outward going through the motions. Husbands, you've you got to love your wives in a way that your wife believes it's sincere. Because, see, women can tell whether you're sincere or you're faking it. And if a woman can tell if her husband is sincere, more times than not, uh, what do you think? God who knows everything and sees the heart, what do you think he sees? We need to be clear. We need to be true about this. We need to understand that salvation is those for those who really repent of their wickedness. Don't go through the motions. They understand today's the day. Okay, heart's hard. They're, they're, they're being fooled by their own deceitfulness. The closer we get to the end, the harder it will be to distinguish the true from the false. That is for those who give in to the spirit of the age. So people who give in to the spirit of the age, they're filled with falsehoods. They're, they're filled with you know, a, a wrong conception of the gospel and of people who are truly saved and what they look like. There's no accountability for the most part in churches today. You know, disciplining a person out of the church is like it's hatred. Even though there's chapters, whole chapters, verses upon verses, that that's the way we're supposed to live. Why? Out of love. We don't want someone to think they're going to heaven when they're not. We don't want people to be self-deceived and go to hell. What is this encouraging one another day by day in Hebrews chapter 3? Take care. Pray for one another. Be with one another. Be transparent with one another. We want to make sure we all get there. And if you're fake and you're phony, you need to come to Christ. That's the message. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a hard word, but it's a good word. It's your word. It's all good. Your word is always right, no matter how we may mess it up. The gospel being preached without repentance the gospel calling people to a better life, the gospel calling pe people to a better life now, when the gospel is about eternity. It's about coming and denying ourselves. It's about being willing to die for the gospel's sake so people will hear the truth. If a man doesn't pick up his cross, that means of death, he can't be my disciple. But that's not preached today. Many, many ways, many times, many, so often, People want crowds. They want people. They want to be offensive. The gospel is offensive. Lord, I don't want to be offensive. I, don't, I certainly don't want to turn people out. I don't want to turn them away. I want them to hear, but they have to hear the truth. Father, I pray that anyone listening to this message would hear the truth. They would get the point. Whether it's Judges chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 3, Matthew you know, all the verses laid out in this message, that the point of the passage would make its way to the heart of the person listening. Lord, I pray 
that you would just open the door for people to hear these realities and these truths because they're your truth. And we know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to dividing of sunder, piercing to dividing of sunder, soul and spirit, even to the joint and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions and the motives of the heart. Lord, I pray that you would do that in the hearers, those who are outside the kingdom, those who may think they're in and they're not. People who are atheists and they don't want in the kingdom, but for some reason they find themselves listening to this message. For the church, Lord, may we be strengthened always in the truth, take these things to heart, have an assurance of salvation where we're not built upon works, dead works, but upon the, on the sacrifice of living God in the person of Jesus Christ for our sins and his resurrection. I pray all these things, not only for the people hearing, Lord, but for your honor and your glory and your pleasure. In Jesus' name. Amen.